Hello and welcome to the Vinyl Sideways podcast, diving deep into a discography one side at a time. I'm Jerry and with me is Al. We're really just a couple of dopes who like to listen to records and talk about them. We're continuing this time with Side B of Pink Floyd's seventh album, the soundtrack Obscured by Clouds. Uh, this is an album, on the, if you listen to our last episode, you'll uh, have discovered that, Jerry, this is one of your favorite Pink Floyd albums. Uh, wh- where would you say it ranks, probably, in your... Is this a top five for the, for the, for the catalog for you? This is definitely a top five. And as a matter of fact, as you were asking that question, uh, I did a quick, uh, I guess, count in my head, I guess you could say, in that... I'm not sure where it would rank. Maybe it's in the top five. And thank you for giving me that answer. It is definitely within the top five. It's a, This is a wonderful album. And there really isn't a bum note, so to speak, in it. And uh, it's very accessible. I think part of its appeal to me is its novelty in that the songs are short. Secondary to that, uh, the appeal of... You know, it being obscure, no pun intended, uh, to the what was to come with Pink Floyd later. It got overshadowed significantly by Dark Side of the Moon. Uh, I never heard of this album until I went off to college and never listened to it until the early 1980s. And when I did, it was one of those, you know, gee, how come I never heard this album before? And it's one I've gone back to many times since. This is a, a, a wonderful album. It's a gem, I guess you could say. How yeah. About yourself? I, I don't know. If I'm going to the desert island and I can only bring five Pink Floyd records with me, I'm not sure Obscured by Clouds makes that cut. But uh, it is it is a top tier. It is a, a upper 50th percentile uh, album. And it's 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 got the bonus of... As you were alluding to, it's somewhat obscure. It's not def. It's 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 not one that many uh, casual listeners will know. And even if you've gone through and listened to everything on the Pink Floyd catalog, or I'm sorry, in the Pink Floyd catalog, it's not. Again, it's not one that you maybe think about just because the the subsequent albums especially but overall there are some there are some bona fide classic albums in their catalog it tends to get overlooked just because of the strength of the rest of the catalog which makes it even more exciting when you do put it on and listen to it and you're you're surprised because of the strength of the material the quality of the musicianship and the playing and the songwriting is all there and it has the added bonus of it hasn't been uh, played out. It's not, nothing on this album is uh, is a track that you've heard to death. You know, uh, the the brilliance of subsequent albums. If if you listen to Dark Side of the Moon, well, how many times have you heard Dark Side of the Moon in your life? You know dozens hundreds who knows how many times you've listened to it or at least heard songs from it on the radio uh comfortably numb is a great track and you've heard it a million times it's not taking away from those songs they're they're beautiful brilliant songs and albums but um there's a familiarity to to those experiences when you listen to those albums if you've been if you've been following the the band for a while or or been a fan of classic rock for a while um with obscured by clouds you don't have that. You don't have that familiarity that you might have with those other albums. So it's like you're discovering it all over again every time you listen to it. Or at least that's my experience. So when I when I listen to Obscured by Clouds, I'm reminded how much I like it, and I am still somewhat surprised by it. I'm not anticipating every uh, sequence or change uh, that's that's about to happen. I don't have the the solos memorized. I don't have all of the lyrics um, sort of planted in my brain. It's it's fun to listen to because there is still a sense of discovery and the material is strong to back that up. Yeah, when you mentioned uh, Pink Floyd material that had been played to death, whether it was something from Dark Side of the Moon 
or anything else. What comes to mind to me was another Brick on the Wall Part 2, which in the late 70s was played to death. I mean, you could not open a door without hearing that song on the radio. It was... Uh, it's a another brick in the wall. Part two is a, a great track, and the guitar work on it is stellar. Uh, but uh, it got played over and over and over. That I quite frankly got sick of it. But more importantly, at least as far as obscured by clouds is concerned, talking about our first track, Childhood's End, that was one of the stands out to me uh, in Childhood's Childhood's End was uh, David Gilmour continuing his uh, uh, the technique of really stabbing and wailing on the solo. Um, the solo that he plays to kick off Childhood's End, the first track on this album, on side B that is, is the solo style on this track is very evocative of Another Brick in the Wall Part 2. More correctly to say that a brick, another brick on the wall, part two, David's solo on it, uh, is similar to what's on Childhood's End. The, the stabbing nature of it, and uh, what sustain he is using, and how the phrases are played are there's definitely a similarity to it. The similarity to it that I noticed immediately. It's a David Gilmour song, so there you go. Yeah, and David Gilmour doesn't have a lot of solo songwriting credits in in the uh, Pink Floyd catalog. Uh, this is one of only a small handful. Even later on, when he uh, sort of became the lead songwriter for the group and the leader of the group, especially after Roger Waters uh, uh, left the group, even then he had collaborators. Uh, specifically, he had people helping him with lyrics. His wife helps him with lyrics uh, to this day. This is, um, uh, and then musically collaborating with Rick and Nate and, and Nick and whoever else he may have uh, uh, working with him. This is, this is Gilmore with, a, with a, a, songwriting, a solo songwriting credit lyrics that actually are, are among, in my opinion, among the best that he's written. Um, this is a funky track. This is one that has... Uh, you were talking about the guitar reminded you of uh, Brick in the Wall Part 2. It reminded me of the the guitar work on a song like Pigs, Three Different Ones, where um, that sort of partly palm-muted guitar rhythm, that sort of kind of sound that's going on uh, underneath everything, it, it reminded me of of that, and that was a technique that he, he used a, a couple of other times. But... Um, the soloing is good. Uh, very rarely is there a David Gilmore solo that's not good. In fact, I could not tell you of any that I think would fall into that category. But um, this is like I was saying earlier, this is an album that you can rediscover every time you listen to it. And when childhood childhoods end, we both have a problem saying that, uh, comes on to open side B, you're like, whoa, this is not a song that I hear ever um this is not one that i think about but it's on uh on a list of tracks that are undiscovered and not overplayed uh by any stretch but are probably worthy of that if they were maybe on a different project if they weren't on a soundtrack album if it was on an album that came out later after the band blew up after dark side of the moon maybe you'd hear more childhoods in but um as it is it's it's nestled there on side B, and uh, it's a great way to kick it off. We talked about ebb and flow of the record. Um, this is this is starting side B, kind of where side A got to after the first opening track. This is this is hitting you with some energy right out the gate. Yeah, it's uh, but it builds to it. It really it spends a full minute uh, building into a tone. Uh, Rick with the synthesizer or may, or some sort of uh, key effect uh, before you start getting your Nick Mason kind of motoric backbeat going. 
Well, actually, backbeat's the wrong way to put it. It's really just a, a thumping. It's that it's that heartbeat sound again, except it's done quickly. You know, the heart is definitely uh, accelerated, but it spends a full minute plus getting to that point before the song starts kicking in in earnest. And it's uh, as far as David Gilmore is concerned uh, on this song. Uh, you know, classic Gilmore stabbing guitar and bends and pushes. Uh, lyrically, it's almost a Roger Waters song. It is, yeah. uh, I'm not going to call it cynical, but there's definitely a pessimistic, uh, there's a pe- pessimistic state to it. There's some bite and, to the lyrics. Yeah, exactly. It's definitely the, uh, there's there, it's biting and it's certainly not, uh, you know, it's anything but whimsical, certainly. And <laughs> we've uh, come a long way from the gnome. Yes. <laughs> yes, we have. It's been a good journey too, but, uh, David's almost banging on the guitar strings as he's playing and um, uh, you mentioned that that muted palm. It's kind of a you know, the rhythm guitar on it is kind of a funky. It's kind of a funky shuffle, I guess you could say, uh, which really goes nicely with uh, with uh, Nick Mason's you know motoric background. Uh, I guess you know whatever he's tapping on to to create that sound. Uh, Rick Wright gives you know his standard nice bed of a choral uh, organ for David to play across. Um, you know, it's this is a very funky song, or it builds to it, certainly. It starts off as something, you know, that could have been on, on Dog's Side of the Moon, but uh, once the entire band is playing along, it's, uh, you know, from Nick Mason's fills to... Uh, uh, Roger Waters uh, banging the strings on the bass. Uh, he's not really banging them, but he's 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 going full rhythm section with Nick on it as the thing kicks into its next gear. Uh, it's this is a very very strong song and a great way to kick off side B. You were talking about how this could be uh, Waters written lyrics. Uh, I'm looking at them right now, and and this this particular part catches me as very Roger-esque where David sings, there'll be war, there'll be peace, but everything one day will cease. All the iron turned to rust, all the proud men turned to dust. I mean, yeah. that's <laughs> that's a Roger lyric uh, by another name, I think. Yeah, when I, when I read that, when I discovered uh, or realized, remembered, whatever, that uh, this was a David Gilmore track, and I remember thinking of it, did they make a mistake? Is this you know this this very much could be uh, a Roger Waters uh, penned uh, song, except it isn't. It's David Gilmore, and where he was able to pull that from, I have no idea. Who knows where they get any of this stuff when you get down to it? But it's a this is a you know without getting you know too. I guess pandering to nihilistic teenagers who hate their lives or anything like that, or suddenly realizing that someday they will die. Uh, you know, it could be said that this sort of material is pandering to that you know almost nihilistic sensibility of of nothing really mattering. But you know, it's it's earnest, it's sincere, and you know, the word I talked about or used probably too much uh, in our previous program, it's legitimate. And the fact that it came from David Gilmore, not to sell his songwriting short, he's just really not noted with good reason as the songwriter from Pink Floyd in this era, that being Roger Waters, of course. Uh, This is as strong as maybe not everything else, uh, but it's it's strong and it has heart and it uh, you know good for David Gilmore to be able to pull this off or pull whatever you know where wherever he was able to reach to to get this content out uh, because it fits in perfectly with the Pink Floyd sound and attitude uh, and it meshes so well 
with the direction that Roger Waters, as chief songwriter, took the band in future albums to come. And this is kind of like a continuation is not the not the right word. This is almost like a you know a prologue to the Pink Floyd sound as it was from the I guess the early to mid 70s and going forward into the late 70s. You know, this fits in very well and uh, but is a standout unto itself certainly because this is before all that actually occurred. Yeah, and you know, David Gilmore I feel is is underrated as a lyricist. I think um you know the the perception that he struggles with with writing lyrics uh i think that stems from his his collaborations on the the later pink floyd albums finding uh that he needed some some help or some guidance with with the the lyrics on those albums but you know in in what i've read and seen in interviews david gilmore on those later pink floyd albums was very much the not just the band leader and songwriter but he was sort of in charge of you know pink floyd incorporated whatever you know the the business of of pink floyd capital p capital f um kept him busy and so finding the the time or the energy to craft a lyric that you know i it probably did take more for him more work and more focus to to address that aspect of his songwriting um but also like he, he's got some good lines he's got some good uh songs that have meaning to them and have a poetry about them uh i think the problem is that you know roger waters being such a strong lyricist and it came easier for Roger, not saying it came easy, but it was easier for Roger, and Roger was much more consistent with his lyrics and definitely had strong viewpoints and things to say on all of his projects. Where David maybe didn't always have that um, that drive or that that push to, you know, feeling he had to have something to say, but maybe didn't have anything really to say at that moment. Um, but this song in particular shows that he does have that within him and does have um, ha- have the the ability to craft a lyric that has meaning and has lines that you'll remember. And uh, you know, it's on uh, a soundtrack album on side B. You have to go. You have to go digging to find this if you're if you're looking for it in, in the Pink Floyd catalog. But that's again. Roger Waters taking over as the lyricist on almost all of the, the next handful of albums uh, because Roger did have so much to say in those projects. Well, if the history of the album itself is to be taken at face value, I mean, I have no idea when specifically David Gilmour wrote down these lyrics or wrote down a version of these lyrics that ultimately became the song itself. Uh, but if it was started, you know, beginning, middle, end, uh, during the two to three weeks that they were putting this album together, then it's a really a it's a big achievement because there there are deep, uh, cool lyrics to a to a really interesting, uh, cool song, I guess you could say. Uh, that's it's and it's one of the longer tracks on the album and it's you know almost four and a half minutes but the 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 fact that there was such a well-realized song as this put together uh within that those that time frame uh is incredible uh and the fact that it was david gilmore's song uh i guess accentuates that uh degree of you know, wow, you know, who would have thought? And uh, there really is nothing before this, uh, as far as Pink Floyd is concerned, that David Gilmour has a solo credit on that uh, is as cool, I, and that's such a broad word, but it's uh, this is his strongest work to date, 
uh, certainly as uh, being the solo writer on it or writer slash creator, although I'm sure within the, the confines of recording it, they all had their input on how the thing would be pieced together or put together or whatever. But it's David Gilmore's song, so presumably it was he calling the shots on it, going, no, let's take it in this direction. Or, you know, who knows how Roger felt about it. Roger, I imagine, liked the song. I mean, how could he not? Yeah, and, you know, Gilmore probably had... uh, He's a smart enough guy where he he identified that Roger was becoming this next-level songwriter uh, and this next-level lyricist and so i think maybe after after this project seeing that roger was was on a roll david probably felt comfortable in letting him be that letting roger be the guy when it comes to uh lyrics and gilmore realizing i have a real strength in the on the music side on the uh not just the guitar playing, but also in the, you know, the chord structures and finding the arrangements where uh, that can be my contribution, where r- he was comfortable to let Roger be the the voice in so much as this is what the song is about. Which, uh, in my mind, makes the song that much more impressive. Uh, it's It has a cool, cool Pink Floydish. Uh, you know, droning beginning, and then it kicks into gear, and uh, you know the the and the the car is racing down the track, and that makes this you know the fact that it was a, a David Gilmore I'm not going to say production, but it's his song. Uh, the fact yeah. that there is that growing sensibility or probably well-acknowledged at that point sensibility that Roger Waters is the songwriter, um, but they were all contributing in ways that they could contribute. Gilmore came up with this song, and it uh, could stand on two legs, and it could run. I mean, it wasn't just a, a filler. In, far from it. It's uh, they, you know, they decided to use this to start side B, and uh, it's standard in most cases, I would imagine, that certainly with a Pink Floyd sensibility is uh, we're going to kick it off strong. And if not, maybe at the very first bit of audible sound, uh, we're going to go into something strong here. And that's exactly what they did. And it, it, it's a really good way to start this side big. And it, it closes with uh, a cameo from uh, the Space Choir, if you, right. reco- if you recall from Saucer Full of Secrets, that, uh, that Space Choir that uh, closes out that track, it says uh, it's a re- it returns here at the end of Childhood's End. Yeah, it's, uh, I like this song a lot. It's just one more, I guess, diamond in what I consider an album full of mostly diamonds uh certainly not entirely so uh but there there isn't a bad note so to speak on this album uh there's some eh, maybe some some that aren't as great as others certainly you know we all have our our likes and opinions but this is such a you know this is one that i would love to hear live you know i really would i mean the the production on it is strong and there's some wonderful moments, particularly David's guitar on it. And it's, uh, you know, this is, I got put this in an ever-growing bag of, this is one of my favorite Pink Floyd songs. Uh, but it is. It's certainly a favorite, a favorite on the album itself. Well, and Nick Mason's Saucer Full of Secrets is performing this track. It's on their set right. list. Yeah, and, and and that makes sense because it, it's definitely a strong song. Of you know, this is one that you, at least, uh, you know, I bob my head to this song when it's coming on. It's a, you know, here we go. We're building and building, and then that that groove kicks in, and uh, you know, like any other rock and roller, I'm rocking out with it. I, you know, it's I like this song a lot. 
Well, and you know, if you're such a rock and roller, does that uh, does that feeling continue into the next track, Free Four? You shuffle in the gloom of the sick room and talk to yourself as you die. To an extent, yes, it does. Uh, it's uh, it's. It's a, it's a different type of uh, rock and quality too, and it's certainly not the uh, we're not off to the races or anything like that. It's more like we're sitting around a campfire singing, except uh, there's something going on in the woods. <laughs> At least that's uh, what it comes down to it. But it's uh, you know when we're talking about track two, free for, uh, it's a uh, well the song is in the film, but it's kind of a it's kind of a clapping happy sing along. Uh, you know, as it begins, you know, you hear the band go three, four as they're counting out the time. Uh, but, uh, and I've tried to think about the sensibility of how they decided that was how they were going to start it. Uh, but I guess I just have to ask, uh, Nick Mason or any other of the surviving members as to, uh, where they're, you know, what was the decision in doing that? But it's a good decision. It works well. It it definitely, well, it tells you the name of the song, <laughs> the song being Free Four as opposed to Three Four. But it's a clappy, happy sing-along. Uh, Rick has his a synthesized power chord, uh, and it gives the impression, at least to me, that as this thing is beginning, that there's something really heavy going on, something dark, um, and maybe if not dark or heavy, then there's a there's an undertone to it that you better pay attention because this is well heavy. This is it, without the, the synthesized power chord, you know, you would be at camp and uh, around the campfire. I, I put down this uh, this track feels like it's uh, the dark side of Saint Tropez. Yeah, <laughs> which is a, a great take, I think. Yeah, San, San Tropez, the track from from Metal, the previous album, that was very much about how uh, how much fun it is to go on vacation to uh, the south of France, and there's a little bit of uh, Roger cynicism in that track, but um, this one feels to me like uh, yeah, that campfire hand clapping uh, rhythm, and uh, all right, chaps, let's sing us a song, shall we? And then uh, Roger says, oh, I'll, I'll sing you a campfire song, all right. Um, and the lyrics are very in that uh, crossover into Dark Side and later era Roger Waters lyrics. And there, there's, been, there's been glimpses before, but um, you know, a lyric like, but you are the angel of death and I am the dead man and I am the dead man's son. He was buried like a mole in a foxhole and everyone's still on the run. Now that's a, that's a lyric that would fit right in on the wall or the final cut or animals, uh, you know, anywhere after, um, after dark side, it's, it's a very, it's a level four Roger lyric to be sure. Um, which is which is fascinating because it's it musically the song is the polar opposite of the lyrics it's a very jaunty kind of a sing-along song but the lyrics are deep and heavy and very much roger water lyrics who else um and uh i think it gives uh, the song this this quality about it that uh makes it so interesting if it was another song that had lyrics about you know similar subject matter to saint tropez or or what have you or even if it was just sort of flowery poetry then it wouldn't have the impact but it does have those dark lyrics it does have um that that uh vcs3 synthesizer punctuating each line and giving a sinister quality like we're singing in the woods but you know there's a monster out there and uh we all know about it but we're trying to not think about it um if you've if you've seen the show lost jerry 
Uh, I know of it, and uh, I always look at Lost as essentially the Tibetan Book of the Dead. So uh, it, uh, but I'm familiar to an extent with Lost, but I never watched the, uh, I never saw the series. Well, in in, in Lost, uh, at the you know the the plane crashes and the survivors are all sort of figuring out what to do. They're stranded on this um, on this island, and uh, just past the beach, it's all heavily you know wooded, thick trees and everything. And at the end of the first episode, they hear this like ominous growling noise coming from deep within the woods. And a couple episodes later, a smoke monster appears. That's kind of how I feel. Like we're all on the beach and we're sitting around the campfire and, you know, the trees are just behind us. And that VCS3 synthesizer just sort of is the smoke monster reminding you that there's danger out there. Yeah, the that is probably the best word for the, you know, Rick's uh, synthesizer that does its regular pulse into the song, uh, in that it lends an air of danger to it, and the song itself is a classic examination of the meaning of life. So there's the monster, you know, the meaning of life, and the meaning of life, I think many people could argue is death. Not to say that that is the sole meaning to it, but that's the end. And it's a cynical take to it, but never let it be said that Roger Waters wasn't afraid to uh, go into bouts of uh, cynicism. The song is very cynical, uh, not acidly so, but uh, it pretty much lays it out as far as, uh, you know, we're here and we're going to go to a place and... Uh, musically, certainly with the synthesizer, that is punctuating that, you know, that end that is uh, coming for us all, unless uh, something else happens. Who knows? But uh, without getting too deep into metaphysics or anything like that, uh, there's a deep danger that's being expressed uh, as an undercurrent to the happy sing-along uh, lyrics notwithstanding that's going on um, but uh, mechanically speaking David has a couple of guitar solos into it they're brief, they're angry they're you know stabbing uh, the first solo kind of echoes into you know I can just imagine him you know you know gripping the guitar neck and shaking it you know shaking the feedback. Uh, out of it, and uh, he does that to great effect. Um, the second solo takes the song to its end, but you know the darkness is there. Roger referencing his dad is a you know as you put it, it's level four. You know, <laughs> yeah, <laughs> clear the decks. Where you know it's getting real now, um, and uh, you know not surprisingly, uh, the song became a popular U.S. single on FM radio and helped the album break the top fifty. Not sure how. I don't know what chord this was. Maybe it was Vietnam. Uh, mm. I have no idea as to why this struck a chord uh, to the extent that it did with the listening public. But this is one of the songs I remember uh, when I heard the album the first time going, I think I've heard this song before, and I had probably heard it on FM radio at one point. Uh, maybe on a late night. I, you know, obviously I can't remember the details, but this is one that struck a memory chord when I first listened to the album, and you know it's kind of heavy. There's some heavy stuff going on. Yeah, and there's even you know to to a degree there's the stab at the record industry that you know Roger would again take a poke at on Wish You Were Here and and Dark Side where he sings all aboard for the American tour. Maybe you'll make it to the top, but mind how you go. And I can tell you, cause I know you may find it hard to get off. And so he's, he's got that, um, he's got that life experience now. And I think maybe that's what was, you know, fueling the, you know, the later albums, uh, lyrically was up until now, uh, not many lyrics at, the lyrics overall have been have been good, uh, but Roger is now at at the phase in his life, 
and in his career where he's got the life experience where he's not so naive, he's he's not so um, uh, he, he's not in a position where he has to uh, play the game anymore. Uh, he can he can see through a lot of the um, the pageantry and a lot of the I guess the the rose-colored glasses kind of coming off to a degree, and he's he's got the life experience he needs to write those biting lyrics that he will become known for. But up until now, he's he's tiptoed there, and now he's letting it all through. And and again, uh, uh, not to repeat myself too many times here, but the 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 music being a juxtaposition with the lyrics, I think, gives this song an added quality of. Um, I'm, I'm not finding the words here, but it's it's it gives it a quality of that juxtaposition sort of makes the listener feel like they're listening to two different songs at the same time. Is this a happy, jaunty sing-along, or is this something with a little bit more bite to it? So uh, that is Free Four. It's a great song. Uh, there's some classic elements to it. I love it. Uh, it's a great part of what I think is a great album. So we're going to move to what I think is one of the weaker songs on the album, although there's some good moments within it, certainly, but that is Stay. Track three of Obscured by of Side B of Obscured by Clouds, uh, written by Rick Wright and Roger Waters. Would you like to begin? Yeah, uh, stay to me. It feels like um, this is uh, part two of the song Summer '68, which was on um, Adam Hart Mother. Both tracks deal with similar subject matter. Apparently, Rick Wright. Uh, is, is having quite a few um, instances of indulging in groupies or one-night stands and finds it irresistible to, uh, to write songs about those kinds of experiences. Um, Someone's got to write them, I guess. I guess so. And I'll say the same thing I say <laughs> about that Summer 68 as I'll say about this one. You know, it's, it's not necessarily subject matter that is wholly relatable uh, to an audience. Not to say that people listening to this song haven't had one night stands or, or whatever, but um, it's not really interesting subject matter to, to write a song about unless it's in the context of uh, there's some great uh, material on the wall about similar kinds of experience. Um, but that's through, you know, that's a, that's a character, and there's there's a narrative and a story being told there. This seems to me like, uh, you know, Rick shouldn't do this if he feels so guilty about it. He's written two songs about it. Um, he should maybe <laughs> not uh, have have indulged so frequently. But um, musically, it's um, it's sort of a it feels like a stab at a at a pop, writing a pop song circa 1972. Um, and I think that's probably why it doesn't hold up to the rest of the album. The rest of the album is not as progressive as Pink Floyd is maybe known to be. It's a very, like we said before, very much a, a, a an album full of more traditional songs. Um, but they all still sounded like they had a, a Pink Floyd edge to them. This one seems to me like it's... Um, Rick had been listening to the radio a lot recently and uh, uh, whatever those AM stations were playing, he was willing to try and do his version of it. And, you know, not that it's a bad song, it just doesn't really hold up with what else is on the album. Well, the song itself uh, is written by uh, Rick Wright and Roger Waters. And where Waters' contribution to this, who knows? Yeah, I don't know. Uh, but uh, this really, you know, 
Maybe he just said, put me on there because why not? This one was best with their heads. Yeah. Um, <laughs> or maybe he helped with maybe some of the arranging or with some of the the poetry of the lyrics, which, you know. That's e- likely. Even that, any any song that has morning dew as a lyric, I'm kind of checking out, you know. <laughs> unless, it's, uh, unless it's Grateful Dead Morning Dew, which is uh, – which is a fantastic song in of itself, but uh, I'm not going to go there. Yeah, but, but uh, Morning Dew, yeah, Newborn I, Day, I like that's dead, just... But, uh. <laughs> yeah, but I hear what you're saying entirely. Uh, the song itself is not in the film, uh, and that's probably was good for the film. I mean, not to sell this song, to say this song is bad. It's just sappy. It is a sappy song, and... Um, it's, you know, it's almost Spinal Tap. It's almost a Spinal Tap song, or could be, uh, in that there's there's a level of absurdity. Not to say that one night stands are absurd or anything like that. I, I'm certainly not a Puritan, but uh, it's just the the idea of the uh, the, the rock musician. Uh, opining about a lo- one night stand and what's going on and bottles of wine and surprised to you know wake up with you by my side just uh, sappiest sap song to ever sap which is <laughs> unfair because there are sappier songs than this but this is definitely one of the sappier perhaps the sappiest Pink Floyd song to ever be recorded uh, which is not to say it's bad because it's amusing. I, I remember listening to this for the first time and going, okay, well, this is kind of, you know, in their early days. It's pre <laughs> dark side, and, you know, this isn't one of these days I'm going to cut you into little pieces. Um, although, surprised to find you by my side, one of these days I'm going to cut you into little pieces. <laughs> I mean, I could see them going in that direction just for the sake of being shocking. All that be all silliness aside, uh, there's a sense of self depreciation for it, uh, where he admits that he can't remember the name of the person that he drank a bottle with and ended up in bed with, and uh, and then he talks about leaving. So, which I thought about, which was just kind of humorous in that respect. And the yo, whoops, gotta run, and you know that to me was was kind of funny, Uh, and I appreciate the cynical acknowledgement of. You know, I guess you could say maybe the seamier aspects of being in a band on a circuit with groupies. But uh, to me, it's just kind of, it's that trope in that, well, you sing about what you're experienced with. And, you know, some bands do songs about the road crew or being on the <laughs> road. And, and that's been done to death. How about one for the groupies? Frank yeah. Zappa also went in that direction. And as you mentioned, uh, The Wall also uh takes a look into that corner as well but uh you know the, the the final refrain or not refrain but the takeaway from the song is is at least as i interpret it is all you can do is laugh at yourself over it and uh you know don't tell the folks don't tell the <laughs> wife this is my life and career and uh oh it's so sad what a tragedy except you know that falls into the trope of these you know these poor rock stars who are faced with these terrible situations um yeah oops but, i did it again poor yeah, you right <laughs> exactly so you know i can imagine rick wright maybe in later years being kind of embarrassed by this uh but this is not to say the song itself is poorly constructed or anything like that you know it's perfectly legitimate in that respect I mean Nick is just playing a background shuffle and you know David Gilmore is playing twangy guitar and you know Rick gets to pound out a you know his chorus melody you know taking it all the way to the end with you know David's guitar um and but one of the on re-listening to it I thought one of the nicer it was a nice, you were talking earlier about these Easter eggs or these little things you find in it upon listening since this album has not been played a lot, was not played a lot when it came out. And it is kind of an unknown or certainly an obscure album, a more obscure album, certainly, than some of the earlier albums. 
But Roger on his bass, who does a very workmanlike job, you know, playing his part on the song. As the song is ending, he does these little melodies off on the side, which are really, it's interesting, it's a nice little touch to it. It doesn't do much for the song one way or the other. It's just interesting hearing Roger Waters doing these little side melodies as the, as the song is ending. But all in all, it's um, if there's a... this, It would be unfair to call this a misfire, but uh, it's uh, it doesn't have the legs that the, uh, the rest of the album does, certainly. And I don't know if it was if it was a song that was about something else, like if, if the lyrics were completely different and it was about something, some other, uh, other subject, if uh, that would change my opinion on it very much, uh, because musically I am I'm, I'm with you on that. It's, it's fine. It's not bad. Um, it's listenable. It's not particularly, I mean, it's out of place a little bit with the rest of the album, but it's not, it's not something like several small species grooving with a pick. Like it's it's music. It's a song. Um, it's it's got moments on it. David's got a blurpy little solo on it that that is good enough. But I think it's um, it's not really a song that serves the project overall. Um, and I think Rick is the the he's he's the one that's pulling up in third place as far as the songwriting is going with, with the group. Um, and that's probably just, he needs to get into a different headspace and he will eventually, he's got some great stuff coming up, um, some great contributions, but I, I think he's, he's just searching for some, something to inspire him to create a song. And we've had two tracks in the last, uh, three albums about, waking up next to a groupie who he doesn't know the name of right <laughs> it's uh it's it's almost again not to sell this song short too much it's almost as if this was kind of a bottom of the barrel or towards at least as far as getting material for the soundtrack album is concerned as said it wasn't used in the film but uh they still had to you know, they had these songs that they wanted to put out a soundtrack album and it had to be an album length and they needed something to put this in there and they had Rick's song and this song here uh, stay and it just kind of it seems kind of a we, we're going to go ahead and go with this because we don't have anything else that's more interesting or better so I think the fact that they saved this for the second to last song on side B uh, says as much about what Pink Floyd thought about this song. Uh, they had to use something, but it says as much about the song as the song itself says about itself. It's usable. There's nothing really terrible about it. There are some things about it that just make you go, yeah, whatever, okay. Uh, and maybe even roll your eyes or smirk a little bit. But um, it's not really a... It's not a strong song in of itself. It is a song. It has its parts to it that are perfectly good and workmanlike and fill the space and uh, you know, it's a nice song in that respect. You know, it's certainly inoffensive, but there's certainly no edge to it or anything like that. If anything, the only edge to it is slightly comedic. The 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 comedic, the slightly comedic aspect to it, if you're looking at it from a the third person sense. Yeah, good enough of a song to release, but ultimately um, inessential. Yeah, certainly. Yeah, I would not consider this song to be essential listening to the Pink Floyd or anything like that, uh, except for, you know, it's like I mentioned earlier, it's amusing in that respect. There's a certain bit of tawdry comedy to it, uh, but even that is brief. And so, you know, nothing really remarkable. Nothing about it really stands out except there's a slight bit of comedy to it. 
and so that'll bring us to the, the final track on side B, the final track on the album. It's called Absolute Curtains. Uh, this is a song, Jerry, that to me, um, it, it had it bridged the widest gap in that it sounded to me like it had one foot in the saucer full of secrets era Pink Floyd, and it had the other foot in what sounded like a very early prototype of Shine On You Crazy Diamond. Um, it kind of it lives in both of those worlds, which makes it interesting to listen to, and that's even without the tribal chanting at the end. Yeah, it's uh, the tribal chanting at the end, uh, you know, going from back to front. To me, it was kind of evocative of um, the, the name of the track escapes me, but the one where they have the, I guess it was the Belfast, was it Belfast or Glasgow? I can't remember. The soccer crowd singing, You'll Never Walk Alone. Uh, uh, was that Fearless? That was Fearless, wasn't it? Thank you, Fearless. Yeah. Thank you very much. I appreciate that. Um, there's a certain sense of that in a kind of, you know, in that it's a, it's a, it's a, it's tribal in nature, certainly. And this is the, if I'm mispronouncing this, I apologize, but the Mapuga tribe, who are chanting, uh, they they do one quick little half chant. Uh, before the second part of this song itself. But at the end, it's just the Mapuga tribe chanting. So there is a tribal aspect there, and clearly, you know, it's from the film, uh, and they, the, the European travelers on their voyage of the journey of discovery are, uh, are hanging out with a lot of very uh, exotic, uh, never seen before by white man tribes, and uh, becoming parts of, of part of that whole experience, uh, but all that said, it's there is an intensity to it. You know, Rick's keyboards they grove. They 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 do their you know Rick's church organ uh, with hints of a melody, and uh, Nick is building crescendos with cymbals and toms. And in that respect, there certainly is, you're going to hear more of that when we get to Dark Side of the Moon or when you get to Dark Side of the Moon. And you're going to hear more of that when you get to Wish You Were Here and Shine On You Crazy Diamond. But um, the most notable part, the what I like the most about it is the first crescendo that builds and they decide to do a, you know, David has a quick little neck slide with a really brief, Mapuga tribe vocalization, and then they reset and begin again. And that decision to do that makes this song very interesting. It's a, it is a nice little flourish, a touch, um, and it allows them to, instead of just doing a, a soundscape, to make it a series of soundscapes, I guess you could say. Uh, but, you know, that reset goes back to Rick's sustained chord and which builds and slowly retreats and um, it's to give room for the Mapuga tribe who takes the thing to the end. Uh, it's very world music in that respect. Uh, not so much as the band playing along with the tribe itself and uh, becoming part of the tribe to follow the, uh, the what happens in the movie, I guess. Uh, not having seen the movie, but uh, in only a trailer. But it is a very nice little touch that they do there, and I thought it was very smart to do that, and just a great little flourish. Uh, you know, it's a, it's a little technical diamond within this uh, particular song, which itself is really not that memorable, except for the atmospherics that it creates. Yeah, this is the most... Um film soundtrack sounding song on the album maybe with the exception of the opening title track but this is the one that definitely feels like this is this is music for a film um this is meant to be music played under a scene that's playing out um 
the end of the film, I'm, I imagine, where, you know, our travelers have finally, you know, they've discovered the valley. Good for them. They made Good that journey them. all the way there. I'm glad they found it. Uh, but the, the tribal chanting is um, indicative of the interactions with the characters and uh, I guess the, the natives in the wherever they are in the film. It's atmospheric without being, um, you know, it doesn't really have an identity beyond that uh, as a song. You know, Absolute Curtains is not one that you're going to scream for in concert because it it's not a bad piece of music by any stretch, but it's not, uh, it doesn't have the feeling for me that it's one that the band composed out of any inspiration other than we've got a four or five section uh, four or five minute section of the film that needs a musical score. Um, so in, in that regards, like it, it serves its purpose and it's a piece of Pink Floyd music that's going to go on the album because it's part of the film. It just, it, it, to me, it struggles for an identity beyond that. Um, that said, I think it's interesting to listen to. Uh, I think the, uh, like I said earlier, it feels like a cross between Saucerful and Shine On, uh, which is an interesting pair of songs to mash up together and create something that sounds like a, a cross between them. I don't know that you could do it again if you tried, but this is this is the sound that it has, uh, you know, to me. Um, as an album closer, I think it it actually does work as an album closer uh, to to sort of settle you into the end of your time with the album uh what has so far been a collection of songs uh we have a bookend with film music and it kind of reminds you that this is meant to go with a film and uh i don't know if it helps to promote anyone into wanting to actually watch the movie um it didn't for me necessarily but i could see it being film music and i could see it working as film music we as a piece of music to listen to on an album i don't think it would make the cut if it was pink floyd just going to make an album yeah it uh in of itself and without the the mapuga tribe vocalization the singing at the end just as a musical piece you know the key rick's keyboards and uh and in discounting david's uh quick uh, next slide uh, to to reset it itself, it's Rick doing sustained chords and uh, mixing chords uh, or shifting chords from one to the next, and very atmospheric. And that could be, you know, it, it's classic Rick Wright building a choral atmosphere. Very good at and made good use of in following albums. And made good use of in uh, in uh, uh, previous albums as well. Uh, he's certainly this is something that he's using here that is within his 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 golf bag of uh, of tools that he uses to build atmospheres and to build you know interest an interesting atmosphere. I think if you were there's nothing memorable significantly of the atmosphere itself except. This is one of them, and this could be at home, uh, Mapuga Tribe singing notwithstanding. You could hear this on Dark Side. I mean, I could. this would not sound out of place there, certainly not within somewhere within the confines of uh, any of the pieces of uh, Shine On You Crazy Diamond. It could have a home there. It's something that Rick is capable of. I think this is also one of the not to sell it short, uh, bottom of the barrel pieces that they needed to complete the soundtrack album. Of course, it was used, used in the film, so it's legitimate to use it in the soundtrack album. But there really isn't a lot else going on except for uh, how they decided the piece, the two parts of it together, uh, and using the Mapuga tribe, uh, including it on the album itself. You know, they very easily could have made a decision not to use them, uh, but they decided to, and that, certainly for the era, was kind of a brave thing to do. That's the sort of thing that would t 
turn off a lot of European listeners uh, or uh, certainly radio programmers, I guess. You know, you know what, what is this? This isn't rock. This isn't rock and roll. This isn't psychedelic. Well, maybe it is a little psychedelic, but, you know, why are we listening to this? Uh, I could imagine programmers being very confused by that. But Pink Floyd, it's a soundtrack album, obviously, but it still has their name on it, uh, exhibited a little bit of bravery uh, to include it with it. They didn't have to, but they decided it was worthwhile to do it. And it's, I agree with you entirely, it, it is a nice way a cool way to uh, close out side B and the uh, the uh, soundtrack album itself. Yeah, we, we've we've talked before on the podcast about Rick Wright's contribution to um, to the band's work. Um, he's very good at at painting atmosphere with his keyboards, organ, piano, synthesizer, whatever he's whatever keys he's pressing down. He's really good at at painting. And that's probably the quality that led uh, the filmmaker to bring Pink Floyd in as his soundtrack collaborator twice. Um, was you know w- whether they wrote a bunch of songs to go with the film or not, he could probably expect that they would be able to provide atmosphere and atmospheric music and a score um, to to the scenes he was asking for. So. Um, this is just an example of them flexing that muscle, I think, of Rick Wright saying, yeah, I can, I can do film music, here you go. Uh, and it'll sound Pink Floyd-y, and then we'll, we'll put this tribe on it to get, and give it an extra little bit of interest, but um, that's what it is. It's not, uh, it's not anything more or less other than it's, it's music to end a film by, and it's music to end a soundtrack album for the film by. Well, now that we've reached the uh, the end of the soundtrack album itself, uh, would you like to offer what you think is your favorite track on the album, and uh, you know maybe one that's not as favorite as the others? Gosh, um, and this is something that you know on previous albums I've had kind of a clear idea of what each of those you know ends of the spectrum would be. This is we're getting into. I think with this album, and we're going to get into a run of albums where that's going to be increasingly more difficult to decide top and bottom tier for uh, for the album, um, just because the material is about to get so remarkably good that you're going to sell something short by saying it's the worst, and you're going to sell something short by not putting it as the best. But you know, to to go along with the conceit here, we'll 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 say that uh, for me. I'm going to I'm going to go out on a limb and say that I think the title track and Obscured by Clouds and I'm going to cheat and say When You're In as well cuz those are such a pair of of tracks that go together. I think they it's They go a, hand in hand certainly. Yeah, I I I'm going to cheat and put both of them together as my top for the album uh because I think that they introduce a new sound for the band with the use of the VCS synthesizer. Um, I think they uh, are really good as film music, but also good as album tracks. Um, and they're they're just uh, a, a good, solid uh, way to get into the album. And there's some really great material on the album, but I think that's a great way to start, you know, start side a is he here listener here's where we're going with this with this next set of of tracks i think for my my least favorite um i'm gonna go with stay uh because of the reasons we outlined earlier it's just kind of a uh a mediocre lyric about uh, ultimately uninteresting subject matter and musically it's it's fine, it's but it's just fine. It's it's not up to the level of other tracks, and it doesn't have the it doesn't pique my interest as much as other tracks. Well, for myself, I'm going to go with uh, Free Four, uh, which is uh, track two on side B. Uh, I'm with you as far as Obscured by Clouds is concerned, and the uh, following track as well. You know the, how they go hand in hand. 
but uh, Free Four has a the, the way it opens with the the guy, the lads going you know one two three four three four um, uh, that kicks it into gear uh, the Gilmore guitar on it is uh, fabulous uh, it's something that we're going to hear again uh, but it is what it's a sound that we really hadn't heard to any great degree at this stage in their career that would become very familiar uh, and used to very good effect as far as his uh, you know his stabbing at the guitar and you know the angry guitar solos uh, she you know, the guy has such range uh, but he could put a lot of emotion and one of them is anger and uh, he does it so well here. Uh, the song Cynicism uh, is right in line with what was to come, so it's cool in that respect in that this is a, uh, a prologue uh, to all of that, and, uh, but it's not clumsy at all. It's, uh, it's clear and defined and well-expressed. And the fact that um, this song uh, was able to crack the top 50 in the U.S., uh, that, uh, I think, itself is notable. Uh, and says a lot about the song um, that this was finding a place in the listeners in America uh, to basically prime them for uh, how gigantic uh, Dark Side of the Moon was going to be. Uh, but, you know, between this, the power chord on the synthesizer to its examination of the meaning of life, uh, you know, Roger noting his dad. I think all of that is very cool uh, to find in a soundtrack album, and uh, it's a it's a heavy piece, and uh, it's, it's my favorite. And uh, and I am in completely in line with you with uh, track three on side B, stay uh, being my you know least favorite on the album. I think calling it Summer '68 Part Two says it all. Uh, as far as uh, the description of the song itself is concerned, uh, it's it's there. It's interesting. There's some humor to it, but uh, it's just uh, it's kind of low level. It's uh, it's really not a standout. You know, if you were to look at the the breadth of the Pink Floyd catalog and to assign sine waves to each of the songs, this one registers hardly a bump and um, it's there it does uh, take up some space on the album and it's legitimately does that it's inoffensive uh, but it's certainly not a standout in any way shape or form it's just kind of sappy and I was never really a fan of sappy songs uh, but uh, those are my like and my or my love and my love not so much um so I guess uh, unless you have any final comments to make, I'm going to close it out. Go ahead. All right. Well, closeout is coming, and the closeout goes. And with that, the needle goes up, and we place the record back in its sleeve. Please look out for our next episode where we put on Pink Floyd's next album. It's the one you maybe have heard of, The Dark Side of the Moon. Uh, we'd love to hear your feedback, so leave us a comment and rate the episode, please. Until next time, this is Jerry. And Al. On the Vinyl Sideways Podcast. See you soon and shine on. <laughs>